Great. Thanks, Ben. And good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha. Great to see you all. Thanks for coming today. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, so thanks for joining today. We are um, right now in a series in the book of 2 Corinthians. Most of you guys are aware of this, but if you're just joining, that's where we've been now for a few months, and we will be through the end of February. So we're starting to approach the end, but we're in chapter 9 today, verses 1 to 15. If you have a Bible or a phone app and want to turn there, uh, please uh, feel free. That would be great. Um, but this is one of the 27 books of the New Testament, one of the 13 letters of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the churches that he started uh, in and throughout the, the, all around the Roman Empire, essentially, most in Asia Minor, but over towards um, Greece, the uh, modern-day Greece as well, so these kind of Greco-Roman areas, uh, but also downwards towards um, Jerusalem uh, as well. So he was a Jewish man himself, he was uh, a Christian hater, he murdered Christians, uh, put them in prison, but then Jesus appeared to him and loved him and forgave him, and he became a Christian and planted all these churches and was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write all these letters that we still have today. But they're deeply historical. They're not mythological. They actually happened. They're about real people written to real cities, uh, just like Minneapolis, uh, people just like us, far from God, who needed to hear that God loved us and died for us. And so that, that is essentially what all the letters are about, but there's some specific contextual things going on in Corinth, which again was a Greco-Roman port city in the region of Achaia, a very well-to-do city, a, a big metropolitan area that um, had a lot of ideas, religious and otherwise, floating around that the gospel came to through Paul, and people were saved, they became Christian, and this church was started. So uh, Paul wrote this letter, the second of the letters that we have in the Bible. There's 1 Corinthians, of course, and then 2 Corinthians. This is the second letter. We've been learning about a lot. It'll probably be too hard to recap all of it. But I did want to say for these last three weeks, we've been in this mini-series of sorts within the letter, the greater book of 2 Corinthians, on the theme of generosity towards Christians, Christians giving to other Christians. And so in the letter, we've been seeing these past three weeks about how Paul's been raising money from uh, richer non-Jewish or Gentile churches. So churches, again, he knew personally because he's helped to start or plant them. But uh, collecting money from them to give to the, relatively speaking, poor Jewish Christian churches in Jerusalem. All as a sign of unity and love and partnership in the gospel. So that'll come up today as well. I just wanted you to, if, you, if you're new to this, you need to understand that to understand what Paul is actually saying at least contextually and historically, there's more theology we'll get to today, but that's where we've been now for a few weeks. Uh, this week is week three of three, so we'll kind of wrap up this mini-series within the book uh, today. But <clears throat> today, we'll look at this theme of God loving a cheerful giver. It's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles. You may have heard before, uh, some of you. We'll talk about that and many other things uh, today, too. So let's read the first five verses to start. And we'll kind of just do this devotionally today where we will um, pause and reflect on a few verses at a time. So let's pick up here in verse, in verse 1. Paul says, Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that's the region that Corinth is in, so he's talking about them, Achaia, you guys, have been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove to be empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians came with me, 
and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So just a couple of quick words on this paragraph. We'll spend a lot of time here, but Paul's essentially saying, it's unnecessary for me to write this in one sense. It's, it's superfluous. I, we, you guys already know about this. You've been ready to give to it. But then he says he's been boasting about their readiness to give to other churches in a different region called Macedonia who have also been giving financially to this cause. But, but then he says the big thing, he's sending other Christian brothers ahead to help collect their financial gift because he didn't want the presence of other Christians to be the only reason that they gave or any kind of undue pressure that might come from their presence. But instead, as we've been seeing so far in this little mini-series, he wants their genuine love for other Christians, their genuine truthful love uh, to produce this, uh, as he says here, a willing gift from their heart not in a forced way, not as a commandment, not as though they have to do it, but a willing gift because they genuinely love other Christians that they're in the same spiritual family with. He wants them to give out of the gospel, um, not just because other Christians are there and to kind of measure up to the, whatever standard they're bringing with them on their way to Jerusalem, passing through Corinth to collect this gift. All right, so hopefully that kind of makes sense, but more on some of that later, but just to give you guys an idea of what he's starting with here in the first five verses. <clears throat> All right? The, the, the big key here, though, being willing gift, not as an exaction. Uh, that's a major, major theme Paul has for the Corinthians that um, we've been talking about and I'll say more on today. Verses 6 to 9, let's keep going. Then he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each person must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, and he's quoting here from Psalm 112.9 about God, God has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Okay, so verse 6 uh, kind of starts on a point of clarity by saying the point is this, and then he uses an agrarian metaphor about uh, sowing seed and reaping a harvest. He says, whoever sows seeds sparingly will only reap a small harvest, but whoever sows bountifully will eventually at harvest time reap bountifully from that initial springtime work. So the big question here is, what does that mean exactly? Because it's obviously a metaphor he's using about the Corinthians' financial giving to the poor Jewish churches. And also it's important to ask this question about what it means because if we're not careful, this idea can end up meaning to us that God will return a physical blessing on us when we physically uh, give to others. Like if I gave $100 to a church or to another Christian, that's a guarantee God will give me back $200. Like, that's not what he's saying. That's actually a dangerous theology because, one, it's works-based. Its underpinning is this idea that God owes us for the good that we do, which is uh, 
contrary in every single way imaginable to the gospel. And so it's dangerous for that reason. But it's also dangerous because it makes the giving selfish and non-sacrificial because if that were the idea, then we'd be giving for the sake of us, not for the sake of others. We'd be giving because we'd be guaranteed that our investment in others would reap a physical return of more money or at least the equal amount of money, which is not sacrificial, which is not how God gave. God gave sacrificially to us. And so if we were not to give sacrificially, it wouldn't reflect the right thing about God's character, nor the right thing about what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is. And that, that is, again, that God spent and we gained. God lost and we were, were given to. We, we got something through Jesus' spilled blood, right? Or instead, what, so it doesn't mean that, but instead, by reaping here, Paul means that grace will abound to us, as he says in verse 8, that, that what we will reap is a harvest of, of grace, that we will um, have sufficiency in all things, he says. This reminded me of when Paul says in, in Philippians 4 that I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And he goes on to say, um, the secret is Christ, the secret is being satisfied in him alone. He goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And by that he just means I can do ministry work, I can love, I, I can, all of my good deeds are produced uh, by him. Their grace is given to me. So um, much more to say about that, but it's similar language here that Paul in this letter to the Corinthian church, uh, he has to say to them. So, um, so he says, uh, we'll have sufficiency in all things, that we will abound in good works. What we'll reap is a type of grace and God-centeredness from him. So it's a spiritual return on our giving, that we'll have joy, that, we'll, that we would get much more over ourselves and cling that much less to our stuff. I think it's why Jesus says elsewhere in the Bible, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And even, you can see this early on with kids even, how much they, even in an early age, start to love Christmas for the sake of giving, not just receiving, and how uh, they're wired for that. As human beings, um, that's been stained because we're sinful, but there's still a piece of God in us in that, the image of Godness uh, in us in that, that we, uh, because God is uh, the, the ultimate generous being, the ultimate giver. Um, but I think Jesus says that in part because um, giving helps us understand grace. It, it helps us to tap that much more into the heart of God the most generous being in the universe. And if more of our giving to other Christians lead to, leads to more of him and more tapping into the heart of God, then that's bounty at the highest level. Uh, and that is a much greater return on our giving than any type of physical return could ever hope to be. All right, then relatedly, he says, uh, backing up to a part of verse 7, he says that God loves a cheerful giver, all right? Big question is why? Why does God love a cheerful giver? Two big things. One, because cheerfulness in giving comes from grace, not from a commandment or the law. So it means that essentially if we're cheerful in our giving towards other Christians, it means that we've been moved by the gift of Jesus. We've been moved by how much God has given us undeservedly not motivated by obligation, by pride, or by arm-twisting, 
or comparison to other Christians or any such thing, but simply, again, because we want to. And by the way, I think this is also why you don't see tithing laws repeated anywhere in the New Testament. There are reasons why those laws existed in the Old Testament for a time, ultimately to lead us to Christ in different ways. I've preached on that holistically, actually, at other times before. So if you want to talk about that, I'd love to chat. I can't go into it for time's sake today, but it existed for a good purpose for a time. But in the New Testament, that's not what we see. Look, when Paul talks about giving here, he's not citing the law and trying to draw an exaction. He's not putting them under the law by saying you must do this because of this particular um, standard or rule. Instead, he's saying it's not a command. It's not an exaction. You don't have to do this, but remember Christ, who is God's gift to you. Give out of that. Give cheerfully based off the fact that you were saved from hell that you were saved from being a billion miles away from your creator, having no hope to pay off your debt or to find your way back to him. God loves you. And he gave to you, give out of that reality. And the reality is, law and cheerfulness are usually at odds. But grace and cheerfulness are not. And so this is why God loves a cheerful giver, because it means that that type of giver is not giving because he believes he will be better off with God based on his gift, that God will accept him more because he gave, but he's giving because he willfully wants to, because he wants to resemble and reflect the fact that God spent for his sake. That's why God loves a cheerful giver and why it distinctly doesn't say that God loves an obligated giver. We are now as many of you know, in the era of grace, the epoch of the New Testament, not of the old, which is why we don't have tithing laws held over our head as a mediatorial commandment. As a do this and then you will live, do this and then you will reap bountifully type idea. That, That era is past. The era is gone. It served the purpose of leading us to Christ, but now that Christ is here, we are under grace. That's the first reason. The second reason why it says God loves a cheerful giver is because Jesus was a cheerful giver. And this is hope for people like us, all of us in the room, who many times have not been cheerful givers, right? So if you feel that, you're in good company. If you feel the weight of that, this is partly why this is here, because God is always a cheerful giver. Jesus is always a cheerful, generous being. This is why it says here in Psalm 112 at the bottom, why God quotes, or why Paul quotes God at all and doesn't just talk more about us, right? Because we could, we could ask, what's this doing here then? If the generosity doesn't have to do with God at all in the first place, right? Paul says that Jesus distributed for to the poor. Jesus gave to spiritually poor people like us in our sin. He gave us salvation, not under compulsion, but as it says in verse 7, He gave what he had decided in his heart. Always remember that, guys. God gave to you based on what he decided in his heart, not because uh, he was obligated to. He chose you, and choice and love go together. Remember also the first part of chapter 8. I know some of you guys have seen this for a few weeks now, but some of you have not. The first part of chapter 8, this is the most important verse by far in all of these two chapters worth 
of biblical text, where he says, you guys, you Christians, you know this. You know Jesus. You know Jesus Christ. You know that though he was rich, he became poor, that you by his poverty, by his crucifixion, might become spiritually wealthy. You might have the the riches of his grace, Ephesians 2 says, another one of Paul's letters. So, cheerfulness comes from his cheerfulness. Cheerfulness comes from being moved by how much we've been given by God. But the second you demand it, the second it becomes a law that mediates us to God, cheerfulness vanishes. It's gone. You cannot have cheerful giving and exaction in the same pile. This is why there's a distinction in the Bible, not a blending. Why we move from law to a bloody cross. Because it's only the bloody cross and being wrecked and moved by that that will produce true, genuine uh, generosity. This is why we preach the gospel here too, because we want life change. Not just fame given to God and salvation for sinners and ongoing bread of that for believers, but True life change only comes from the gospel, not from the law. Cheerful giving that reflects grace, not smileless, forced giving that makes us proud because we think we're better than others who aren't giving as much, or terrified that we haven't uh, done enough. The gospel is the only, the only right-motived right thing that will produce uh, generosity from the heart that's cheerful. In fact, some of you guys may have heard this before. I hear this a lot, actually, in Christian circles, and it's not accurate. Uh, I understand the heart of it, but it's not accurate. But this idea that the remedy to materialism is generosity. You guys ever hear that before? I hear it all the time. I've read it. I've heard it at conferences, big and small. I've heard it from other Christians before. That the remedy to being materialistic is just be generous, that's actually not true, uh, that because the law is not the remedy to materialism, right? Um, our actions are not the remedy. The gospel alone, Jesus' death and resurrection is the loan to your materialism. It's, it's the, that's what Paul is saying here. Cheerful giving comes from Jesus. It, it comes from, you know Jesus, Corinthians. You know about his rich-to-poor movement coming down from heaven to die for us. You know that. So give out of that. And there's this void of him quoting tithing laws because we've moved on from that. This is a willing gift because willingness and love and choice go together, right? Because God willingly chose us in our sin to be saved. All right, next, next and final section, verses 10 to 15. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every, in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. All right, there's a lot going on in this paragraph. So I think, it, I think it's clearest just to list out 
uh, the different positives or blessings or graces that flow from Christian to Christian generosity. So if you're not a Christian here today, there's still principles here to latch on to um, and to see how God's grace might be even more at work in your life and in the generosity that you've been shown and that you show others than you realize. And so I'll just hear that as well. Uh, this is especially, though, a call for Christians to give to other Christians in their church or other churches that they're partnered with locally or globally. All right, so here we go. Blessings that flow from Christian generosity. The first one's the most obvious, but and that is physical needs are met. He says the ministry of this service, this financial fundraising campaign, is supplying the needs of poor Christians in Jerusalem, the saints who are there. And what's interesting in verse 10, actually, which um, I won't go back and read, but it says that God is the one who supplies the seed in the first place, or again, the, the gifts. He's quoting from Isaiah 55, which talks about rain and other things being sent from heaven, in other words, from God, which then means that God supplies his own gifts to be given to us by, by others. I was reading one commentator on this uh, who said about this idea that if God supplies the seed and we're the ones who, who sow or give the seed, essentially, and that a harvest comes from that, then he actually said, then technically speaking, it's, it's impossible for anyone to give except God because everything belongs to him. It'd be like if I gave uh, my oldest daughter a, a gift of some kind and then she gave that right away to one of her siblings. It would actually be a gift for me, right? Because it was my thing that I gave to one of my kids, right? But it's interesting. He's not, not saying like or proposing that we stop talking about each other as givers or anything like that. Obviously, that's not, that's not the, the takeaway. But he is saying that if God really is the giver of the seed, uh, the giver of the gifts, then if we give those gifts, then ultimately only God can give. No one else can be generous. No other human being can ever give anything because they haven't worked for it. Everything's been given. I think it's 1 Corinthians 4, 7 that says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have in your life that wasn't given to you? And the implied answer, of course, is nothing. Every single thing, big and small in your life, no matter how hard you've worked for it, is a gift from God. And so when you take some of those things, money or otherwise, and you pass them on, the seeds of those things, they're actually gifts from God through you to other people. All right, this is a bit of a digression, but I think it's helpful for us to understand that. It'd be akin to saying, which we hear a lot in the church too, about how uh, some people um, want to make more money so they can give more of it away. You know, how they can be generous with more of God's stuff that they're given through their, through their jobs. That's not wrong. It's a great way to think as a believer. They want to be successful at their work and grow and in influence and favor and make money and then give it because they don't view it as their stuff. Um, and so in a lot of ways then they see more of a harvest because they, they've been given more seed to be generous with. But again, that's kind of a secondary digression. But what I do want us to see though is how all that shapes our understanding of God being Lord of the earth, owning all of it, being the giver of all good gifts, but also 
how this shapes our understanding of how our active giving is really a reflection of Him. How you can't really separate, no matter what our intention is, you can't really separate our acts of giving from God's acts of giving. And that's why Paul is going back and forth so much between saying Christians give to one another, but it's not a commandment, but thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And how much has he distributed freely to the poor? Then he's back talking to Christians and back about God, how it's just interchangeable because you can't really separate the two. As spirit-filled believers, uh, this too is how we need to think about generosity. The second is that thanksgiving increases to God, or another phrase he uses is, God gets more glory. He gets more fame, more credit. Um, This is one of the principal fruits of salvation, is we start to become more people of thanksgiving, right? Uh, The the Bible actually commands it elsewhere in the New Testament, be thankful in all circumstances, right? But this comes more when we credit God more with being the giver. If we take God out of the equation, we have less thankfulness in our hearts and less will flow up to him. So it says here that you'll be enriched in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And, and again, this does not mean that we'll get paid back for our giving uh, physically as if that's how God worked and as if that's what the gospel was. It's not. But instead, a, a harvest of righteousness will well up, it will increase, that will show our salvation genuine through cheerful giving which stems from us being moved by the gospel, which honors him in the process because he is the giver. All right, then third, unity will be more achieved. Uh, Peter is praying this earlier, but verse 14, uh, speaking of the Jerusalem Christians, uh, that they, they will long for you when they receive the gift. They'll pray for you because of the, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And if you know anything at all about Jew-Gentile relations in the first century, it wasn't, um, it wasn't amazing. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Uh, and so these are like people who are becoming Christians in family who hated one another. And so Paul is like, this is a big part of the New Testament is God saves all kinds of people and God many times will save two, ty- two types of people that otherwise would kill each other but are learning to love each other because Again, they've been moved and humbled by grace. And a financial gift from one party to, to the other will, will demonstrate that unity. And so this is a great motive to give too, whether to other churches, uh, other Christians who you're a bit at odds with, um, or whatever. I mean, unity comes from love and unity comes from uh, this act of grace, Paul called it. This gospel embodying act of grace can really start to bridge human beings Uh, together as well in the spirit of how we've been bridged to God through Jesus Christ. And then fourth and final, uh, the gospel will be embodied. We've been talking about this, but I love how Paul ends the whole section by saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So I I think this is, um, and I know he's not literally doing this because he's writing this, but to me it feels like a putting down the pen moment for Paul where he says, after all has been said, and the more we talk about human-to-human, Christian-to-Christian generosity, I can't help but think about God's generosity. It just makes me think about him because he's the author of all of it. 
and about the gift he gave me, which is his son. And he gave you, which is his son, which is, and when he gave me, which is his son. And his gift is inexpressible. And so it's kind of this moment where he's putting the pen down and just sliding the chair back away from the table and just saying, thanks be to God for his gift, which, which eclipses all human giving. And, and in fact, all talk of human giving should eventually get us there to verse 15. If it doesn't, we're missing something big. We're missing some big part of the equation that we need to reinsert back into it, that um, all talk of giving to other people must get us to that moment of worship where we think about the gift of God that gives meaning to all lesser gifts uh, given between people. I was talking to my community group last week about this the other night, how this whole argument can seem kind of confusing because Christ is in all of this, as we've been saying, right? Rather than being one neat little part of the equation. So if, if we're asking the question, what part of all of this is about Jesus and what part of all of this is about us, it's hard to read this passage. It's harder anyway. But I think we're asking the wrong question then. Instead, Christ is all and is in all the Bible says. So, in other words, just think about it this way, if this helps to simplify it. What we've been saying is Christ is in the cheerful affection of the Christian giver. He is the willing giver based on what he had decided in his heart, not giving to us in response to our good works. So, and I'm saying this, by the way, textually we're talking about the passage, but also think about this experientially. Anytime you've ever given to another Christian or received from another Christian, think about these types of things in that space as well. So again, Bible and experience, okay? Christ is in the cheerful affection of the giver. We should see him in the cheerful affection of the giver. But he's also in the gift itself. The gift being, the ultimate gift being his very body given over to be crucified for our sins, so that by that act of willing poverty, we might become spiritually rich. So he's in the giver, he's in the gift, whether it be money or otherwise, he's in, like mystically, spiritually in that as well. And he's also in, sometimes, the response of the receiver. This is what I'll call like the affections of grace, where the affections of the receiver of the gift can also serve as an emblem of Christ's affections for us. In this case, in verse 14, Christ is the ultimate one who longs for us. This is not just about the Jerusalem Christians longing for the Gentile Christians in Corinth, but it's about Christ longing for us because every Christian is a Christ figure. Where does longing come from, right? But Christ himself. And he's the ultimate one who prays for and intercedes for you and for me. Like Romans 8, John 17, 1 Timothy uh, 115, I think it is, about mediation. Uh, Christ is the ultimate mediator. And, um, and so we see a, a, just a whisper of that when another Christian prays for, for us. All right, so we could go on, but what, what makes this even more beautiful, though, this idea of thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, what makes this even more beautiful and more scandalous is the fact that you and I as we've even said today and sung even today, 
We are sinners. And more than sinners, we are his enemies. This is a very, I think Peter, or was it Spence? Uh, one of the guys prayed this this morning, how um, this is a major part of Christian theology, right? Most of you know this, some of you may not know this. We are not just people who are five degrees off, or as one of the old heresies from the fourth century said, we are people who've gotten into the habit of sinning, and we need a good moral teacher to course correct us five degrees. That was a, an early heresy called Pelagianism uh, that was debunked early and refuted and, um, and called out uh, in, in and through the Bible. So that's not sin. That's not our story. That's not the problem. The problem is much more dire. The problem is we're dead in our sins. The problem is we're rotting corpses in our sins. The problem is we don't want to be saved. The problem is we don't want God. The problem is, like Romans 3 says, no one seeks for God. Um, the problem is actually, I don't know if you guys, uh, so going back to, um, Spence was praying this to earlier a little bit, and I know for a lot of you this is on your mind. Um, <clears throat> when you think about what sin is, um, we have to have a good definition of this to make the gift all, all the more receivable. So I don't know if you guys saw those pictures from last Wednesday at the Capitol of the, um, the rioters and the insurrectionists who, who stormed the Capitol, uh, some of whom even sat mockingly in the speaker's chair for a selfie. Did you guys see this? There was two, actually. <clears throat> there was one who, uh, who sat in the speaker's office with his feet kicked up on her desk, and there was another who sat in her chair in the house chamber, I think it's called. So anyway, there, there's a couple of things. That was just two of the pictures I saw right away. And I'm just like, what is going on? And I had a flood of emotions that kind of came over me. As the dust settled from that, though, uh, here is my thought. I looked at those two guys sitting in, those, sitting in the speaker's chair and others who were pillaging the place. And I thought, you know what? That's me. I've done that. You've done that. That's what sin is. We've actually done that, though, on a much worse level to God. See, sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is sitting in God's chair and mocking him. That's what sin is. Sin's not, oh, yeah, I broke one of the Ten Commandments last year, but it's been okay ever since. Sin is staging an insurrection against God. It is staging a coup. It's robbing him. It's sitting in his chair and spitting in his face. It's claiming to be sufficient on our own. It's, it's disbelieving in him, but it's also believing that he's there for some advice maybe, but not to be Lord of our life. It's believing we determine what's right and wrong. It's eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thinking, if I can, I can handle it. If I know what's right and wrong, I can be a God unto myself. It's robust individualism. It's replacing God with false perceptions of goodness. It's replacing him with us. This is, this, is, this is the sobering reality that, I mean, if you watched what was happening Wednesday, and, and um, I'm not going to claim to know exactly what you guys felt, and speaking just broadly here, but if you felt like any mix of what in the world is going on, what are they doing, those fools, or if you felt disdain or anger or even hate for what was going on, if you pointed the finger in any way and said the problem is with that person or that act or that political party or that decision from that senator. 
At some point, we have to come to realize we are who we hate the most. It's a mirror. Uh, the problem is here. It's not out there. As much as we might think it is, and as much as it kind of is sometimes, the biggest problem in our lives is us. We've pillaged the house of God. And so when they become a mirror, we can understand. As sobering as it is, and as offensive and humbling as it is, it's actually diffusing of our anger, and it leads us to brokenness and repentance and prayer to God that he would save us. Because what other hope do we actually have? If that's what we've done to God, what other hope do we actually have other than God alone who can forgive? But here's the good news, uh, and I'm, I'm already kind of hinting at it, but uh, some of you guys have read this before. In the book of 2 Samuel, the Bible actually has stories literally in it of, of David, King David, showing kindness to insurrectionists. It's like relevant, hashtag relevance, right? Um, actually showing kindness to people who staged a coup, his own son even, Absalom, against him and Absalom's followers. This is a pronounced, long biblical narrative of King David showing kindness to people who sat in his chair and spit in his face. But the good news is, Christ is the son of David. Jesus is genealogically and ancestrally and on a resemblance level in the line of David. In other words, he's the enemy lover. He's the insurrectionist lover. He's the coup starter, forgiver. This is why these stories exist at all. Not just to say you be like that to people who stage a coup against you, but to say the king is like this. He'd be totally just in erasing us into hell forever, but he was patient. He didn't. He was kind. Christ, see the sin is heinous. The sin is worthy of hell, but the gospel says that Jesus became the insurrectionist for us so that insurrectionists like us can be reclassified as sons and daughters of the king who will eat forever at his table. But see, it doesn't happen without substitution. You must believe that Jesus died on a cross, became sin for you to be saved from sitting in God's chair and stealing all of his stuff. This is what we've all done. We are sinners. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We are wicked in the heart. And we cannot save ourselves. We cannot do enough good. We could try till we're blue in the face, but it won't matter. None of it will matter. We need God to give to us. You see, this is why we're talking about this, because that right there, all that stuff on that slide... If you think even for a second that you kind of deserve it or it's not that much of a surprise, it won't be as beautiful. It won't be as needed. You won't sing it. It won't resonate in your heart and change your life, right? I mean, it's a good litmus test. Like, how surprised are you by those, by those things? Or how surprised are you by number, by number two? How surprised are you that Christ was the gift of God given to you. Like, are you shocked? Then maybe you're thinking about these things clearly. If you're like, I'm not that surprised. Because maybe you think kind of highly of yourself. We, we have to have the right dark 
background against which the bright foreground of all this theology needs to shine. But this is why we're talking about this, because God didn't just give. He gave to the worst of people to ever live, you and me. The worst of people. He gave to dead people. He gave to people who were literally his enemies. This is scandalous love, scandalous grace. It should have never happened, but it did because God's the kindest being ever to exist, the most generous being ever to exist. And so for Paul, then, I think he knows this as a guy who used to murder Christians who's now been saved forever. Like, he's writing this down. He's saying, I can't, the more I talk about giving to each other as Christians, the more I have to put the pen down and just say, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Because we can express and quantify and measure literally with the ruler the gifts we give to each other, but we can't measure or quantify the gift of God. We can barely put it into words. And so it leads him to worship. It leads him to stop talking about the gifts to Jerusalem Christians for a minute and start and final, finally talk, finalize it by talking about the vertical gift where we only talk about God giving generously to us his own body giving his own one and only son to be sacrificed on a cross for us so we might be saved and so if anything for us then i i hope then you guys um feel a dual thing here kind of moving away from this these three weeks um god's been very good to our church um, you guys, so many of you have, I've been the receiver to so many of your gifts. I'm looking at people who've literally given me Annalisa stuff over Christmas or that these past during the pandemic. Um, thank you. And I've seen Christ in that. And God has been so good to us in this area. Um, let's not rest on our laurels. Let's thank God, right? More thanksgiving can well up to God. Let's give to each other more. And if you take that away from this, I think you're taking away a very appropriate and good thing. What Christians can I give to this week? What a great Monday morning question to put on your calendar every week and ask, who can I help in my spiritual family at Hiawatha or in a different church in, in this city or beyond? That, that's a, and how can I embody the gospel in that? At the same time, if we stop there, we're missing, we're missing the whole point. We're missing how Paul ends. We're missing verse 15, right? Um. God wants you guys to hear him call out to you, even in these words, saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you more than you'll ever possibly know. And if you believe in me, I'll save you. Uh, rest underneath the wings of my generosity. Uh, don't strive for it. Don't try to replace it with yourself. Uh, gaze upon the cross and, and know me through it and, and be saved. Those of you who are not Christians yet and those of you who are Christians, the message is the same. It doesn't matter where you are spiritually. It might be bread for day one for you or it might be bread for day a thousand. But all good gifts come from him, principally the gift of Jesus Christ dying on that cross for us. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage and for what it means to us uh, on so many levels, it's, um, I was praying this morning just about the full range of emotions for us. Uh, it's, I mean, I know this personally, but for all of us, we can feel different things and respond differently to passages like this. It could be motivational, it could be convictional. 
Uh, it could be sobering. It could lead us to weep. It could lead us to rejoice and laugh. It could lead us to be thankful, to take a deep breath of fresh air and be relieved. It could lead us to worship and thanksgiving. All kinds of emotions can and appropriately do come uh, from this. So I pray for that for all of us present here, um, not just now as we sing this last song, but throughout this week. Um, God, cure us of materialism through the gospel. Um, help us to be cheerful givers, but we're not at the same time. We're not cheerful givers. We give, we don't give. We give for the wrong motives. So save us from the sin of that through the cheerful gift of the Son um, who saves us from all of our sins and uh, gives us the hope of eternal life. In Christ's name, we pray it all. Amen.